The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Church, you can keep standing. Just real quick, that song um, just serves as such an awesome and amazing reminder for me this morning. And just bow your heads with me real quick. I don't know um, if you're like me when you come into this place. Oftentimes on a Sunday morning, there is um, we have no idea what's going on. Um, I have no idea what's going on in your life. I don't know each of you. Uh, but the reality is in this room, we know that, that we bring in this place um, different stresses, different pains, different griefs, sorrows, burdens, strife, um, so much stuff that that oftentimes can keep us um, from God. But the reality is, in, in this place, we have a God who is unlike anyone else. And there is no one who is greater than the God who we worship this morning. And there is no situation, there is no circumstance where he is not able, he is not great and good. So often we can forget that, but I don't know what it is in your life, but just take a minute. Lord, we confess that often we can be a people who do not trust you in the midst of our circumstances. Our temptation can be like so many others, to compromise, to doubt. Lord, I pray that you would allow us the ability to lay these things before you. We praise you that you are a great and a good God, a miracle-working God who is able. And Lord, that there is, there is none like you. There is no one higher than the God that we serve in this place this morning. Father, I pray you would bring peace into the lives of those who need peace, that you would bring healing into those who need healing now, Father, that you would provide hope into our lives, Father, that you would calm us and just even prepare our hearts now for your word. Father, we love you, we praise you, and there is no one like our God. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Grab a seat. Well, my name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview, and I have the joy of being able to open God's Word with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are, this summer, going through the book of Daniel. This morning, we find ourselves in the sixth chapter of Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them. Uh, We will be reading the entire story this morning. If you have your phones, you can pull them out. I will tell you um, that I don't believe there are any Pokemon in this room, okay? There might be one floating around in the lobby, I'm just saying, but it can wait. It'll be out there, all right? So no Pokemon catching up in here, all right? Daniel chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning. Um, it's Friday night, well, late Saturday, early Saturday morning, about 2 a.m., uh, my family and I got back from our vacation. We took a um, road trip, a pretty extensive road trip, uh, kind of went southwest and then Kind of came back. It was a loop. Somebody asked me, where is your destination? Where are you heading on this road trip? And the response was home. All right. Our hope is to simply get home. We spent about 13 days on the road, put over 6,000 miles on our vehicle. 
Uh, my wife, pregnant wife, six months pregnant, and four children were loaded up in the car, and off we went. As in any road trip, uh, there are a, a certain amount of dangers that can easily present themselves, and uh, they certainly did on our trip. Uh, first danger was, you know, the first place we stopped was the Grand Canyon. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you will know that it is an amazing spectacle. It is an unbelievable demonstration of God's power and might. So we stop at the Grand Canyon. I have to warn the kids, okay? It's big. It's huge. And there's only railings around a very small portion of the park. And so the, the dangers were plenty at the park. In fact, I might have been the, the largest danger at the park because when we got there, I was thinking the kids were just going to be like, oh, it's amazing. But instead, there was a little squirrel, just a common rodent. I was running around and I'm sitting there just taking it in. And I'm like, Where's everybody at? They're over there playing with the stupid square. I'm like, get over here and look at the canyon, dude. So I was getting a little mad at that point. Anyways, then after the Grand Canyon, went to California. San Jose stayed there, saw family. Then kind of worked our way back slowly. Um, we went through Idaho, Lava Springs, stayed there. Got to soak in some hot mineral springs. That was pretty fun. And then um, spent a night in the Grand Tetons camping. And we got into bear country. And our kids were just like so concerned. Like, what do the bears look like? How do we know the black bear from the grizzly bear? Which one eats us faster? They just constant questions about the air. The dangers were plenty. Go through Yellowstone and um, just took in the beauty and saw the amazing things that God has done throughout creation, that part of the world. And then kind of slowly worked our way back. And then... We got from uh, about Billings, Montana, to, um, to uh, Grand Rapids. There was a stretch, a long stretch there, and we are kind of hauling through the night. We are trying to get in Grand Rapids, see Mount Rushmore, stay there the night. And so we're trying to push through. And there's two ways, if you've ever been to this part of the world, there are two ways you can go. Okay, There's one way the interstate's a little bit, so they say slower on, I think it's 90 or 94. I can't remember which one. They're all kind of a blur right now. And there's this other way, a two-lane highway that you can take. It kind of goes up into Montana and then snoops, sloops back down. And it's supposed to be a quicker way. Okay, So I'm thinking to myself, it's 10 o'clock at night. It's going to be like another three or four hours before we're there. I'm going to go the faster way. Okay, I'm tired. I want to push through this thing. So we, we take the faster way in this lonely highway with big trucks passing us. And about 20 minutes into the route, the, the person at the gas station said, I would recommend taking the interstate, though this way is faster. And I thought, nah, come on, I'm going faster. Come on, I got this. Well, while we're going, I mean, uh, during this whole trip, this is probably the most dangerous uh, portion of our trip. And it's probably due in large part to me. And here's why. Because as we're going, we're driving, and I start to notice that there are deer. I mean, every five to 10 seconds, there's like, 10 deer posted up on the side of the road. And these are not like the Iowa deer. Like at first, the first 10 or 15 minutes, I started to slow down. Like where there's one, there's going to be more. It's going to jump, and you're not going to be able to control it. So we just slow down and gradually go by. Well, after doing that for about 10 to 15 minutes, I'm like, we're going to be at this all day. I mean, seriously, in about three hours, we had to have crossed at least 200 deer on the way. It was just deer after deer after deer. And the crazy thing was they were just posted up on the side of the road, and they were just eating right there. They drive by, they just look up, and they go back to eating. I don't know if they're like feeding the deer along this highway or what's happening, but it was the weirdest thing. As soon as we got into Wyoming, no more deer. Very bizarre. But while we're driving this stretch, everybody else, it's like one in the morning, everybody else is passed out in the car, and here I am driving, just enjoying my thoughts, and um, all of a sudden, trying to watch out for the deer, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this massive moth surfaces in our vehicle. And if you know me, I am 
terrified of moths. Just basically insects in general, but there's something about fuzzy flying. They're sporadic when they fly. You can't control them. All of a sudden, it just shoots in front of my face, and my hands are on the steering wheel, and I go like this, and my wife like flies against the door. What's going on? What's happening? And she sees me trying to like have a battle with this moth. The kids are up. They know Dad hates the moth. They're trying to save. So the most of all of this trip, the most dangerous element of the trip really was me and my pathetic fear of little bitty moth. So 6,000 miles gave me the opportunity to come up with this awesome sermon title this morning, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel and the Lion's Den is the sermon title for this morning. And in this passage, we see, I know it's pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty good. Uh, We see two dangers in this text. Just like my road trip, lots of danger after danger, some maybe not so much, but in this text, we see two dangers as we approach Daniel chapter 6. And the first danger that we want, I want to talk about is the danger of familiarity, the danger of familiarity. One of the, this, this story that we're about to read in Daniel chapter 6 is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. No doubt many of you here this morning have heard it. And when we know something so well, when we are familiar with something, we have a tendency to sort of either fill in the blanks as we go along or simply drift. The story is familiar because it is great. And the very greatness of the story and the characters may stand in the way of us getting the point. Understanding that the lesson that God wants for us this morning. First danger we see is the danger of familiarity. The second danger... Is, is the danger of piecemeal, sort of a superficial piecemeal moralizing that can oftentimes happen when we read not just this chapter, but also the book of Daniel. When we take the life of Daniel and his actions and we hold them up as a model for our imitation today, where he becomes the standard or the bar that we now have to jump over, sort of a works-based righteousness. Granted, there is much to learn from Daniel and his life. However, that is not the purpose of this book. It is not the purpose of this book, and it is not the purpose of this story. So those are the dangers that we want to avoid this morning as we approach this chapter. The danger of familiarity and the danger of a works-based righteousness. Our hope is not to walk out of here this morning and to be more like Daniel. All right? If that's where we place all our hope, and after we read this passage, we are wrong. Don't do that. There's great stuff to learn from his life, but that's not the point of the story. Well, we've looked already at the first five chapters as a church. In the first, in chapters one through three, we see Daniel and his friends in Babylonian captivity under the reign of the mighty king Nebuchadnezzar. And we see God through Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah showing the king again and again and again who is actually in control. God is actually in control. We see them demonstrate that and bear witness to their God in front of the great king Nebuchadnezzar over and over and over. So finally we get into chapter 4 and God sends King Nebuchadnezzar into the wilderness like a wild animal eating grass for seven years before eventually bowing to the holy and sovereign God of Daniel. Then we see in verse uh, chapter 5, a new king comes in. At the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, poof, 
is just gone. We don't have much of an explanation of what happens to him or where he's gone, where he goes, but poof, just like that, Nebuchadnezzar is gone, and in chapter 5, we're introduced to a new king, King Belshazzar. He's the king, and when we read, he, he, he has this experience where he's, he's in his chambers, and there's this, this wall, and, and a hand appears and starts to write this language that he does not understand on the wall, and so he's heard of Daniel. He knows Daniel is a wise man, and he brings him in and has him interpret what is the meaning of this writing. Writing. And then we come to, at the end of verse 5, to Daniel interprets it for him. And we come to the end of chapter 5 and verse 30 and it says this, That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So as we come into the text this morning, we see kings come and kings go. We see kingdoms come and kingdoms go. And now, Daniel chapter 6, we have a new kingdom in place in the city of Babylon. It is a Medo-Persian king, and Darius is the one who's on the throne. Now, 83 years, God's people have been in exile in a foreign land, a broken, corrupt, pagan land. He watched, Daniel watched as God was mocked, as he was spit on by those around him. His people, Daniel's people, were slaves. They were in exile in this great empire. You can't possibly imagine a more hopeless situation. You can only imagine what life was like for Daniel as he watched those around him, those who, who started out having faith that God would deliver him, that he would do what he said he's going to do, as he watched his comrades no doubt compromise time and time again, their faith, as he watched them fully assimilate his friends, peers, some of them, assimilate into Babylonian culture. You can only imagine what was going through David's head, Daniel, excuse me, Daniel's head, and how hard it must have been for him to trust in his God. Folks, the reality is this morning that we live, we too live in a broken World. I mean, it doesn't take much to just look your head up and, and look into the newspaper or the TV and, and survey the landscape, the social, cultural, political landscape of our time and see that, that we live in a broken world. That we live in a broken world, much like Daniel lived in a broken world. And if we look at the conditions of our country and we see division along political lines, racial lines even, we see injustice we see brokenness and pain and grief, we too could easily lose heart. The temptation would be for us to say, God is not faithful, so why should I be faithful to him? That would be the temptation, the exact temptation that Daniel faced in his day. See, the message of today's story was aimed first of all at the Israelites who faced a similar temptation that we do this morning in this room. The temptation to ignore God's law and to fully assimilate into the world around them and to no longer trust God for his deliverance. That we would be so burdened by the world around us that our response would be fear and rejection of who God is and what God says he will do. This message was written to a people who felt the exact same way. 83 years in captivity and exile in a foreign land. Our homeland, the temple, is destroyed. You say you're going to deliver us? Well, I can't imagine how many people died during those 83 years who never once saw the delivering hand of God. Year after year after year. Cannot think of a more hopeless situation. 
This morning, as we look at the text, we're going to look at two major themes that surface in this text. The first one is not just in this passage, but also throughout the book of the, the book of Daniel and the Bible. Um, the first theme is we're going to look at is God's people in a foreign land. God's people in a foreign land. If you're a note taker, I don't have much notes for you this morning. That's one of them. And then halfway down, you could write um, the next theme, which is God as rescuer. God is rescuer. So first, as we work our way through the text, we're going to see God's people in a foreign land. Before we do that, I want to read a passage in Matthew. Jesus talks to his disciples, and, and, and he gives them two guiding principles for how they are to operate and navigate this world, which sometimes can be hostile towards them, can be very different from them. There's a way they are supposed to. He calls them to live in the world. And he gives them two basic principles for how they are to do that. One is the salt principle. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the people's feet. We are called, if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a part of his people, of God's people, he calls you the salt of the earth. And salt does do no good if it is not touching the thing it's supposed to affect. For example, I mean, this is barbecue season. I love to barbecue, and oftentimes we'll make a nice rub to put on the meat before I throw it onto the grill. And oftentimes salt is one of the big bases in that rub. And I can make a great rub as I put all these spices and seasonings together. I could seal it up in a jar, and I could set it on the shelf. But the reality is until that salt, until that rub touches the meat, it's not doing anything. It's not doing anything. As salt, we are to be in contact with the world. We are supposed to be mingled into the world that we are called to affect. Now, I think first century salt, and not so much the taste and seasoning, but more the preserving aspect of salt's usefulness and how it is called used to preserve meat. Likewise, we are called to preserve God's, to be a part and involved in God's preserving work. It has to be mingled in has to be in contact. Salt does no good 10 feet away. If we don't come in contact with the world, we render ourselves worthless. The next principle is we are called to be the light of the world. Verse 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are called to be the light of the world. If the light is dim, if there's not much of it, if it is a small flame, it doesn't do much at all. Light has to be near the darkness. It can't huddle up together. Light has to go out into the darkness. It must to be useful. We have a temptation oftentimes to, to keep our light together. We are not to withdraw from the world. We are to shine in the darkness. These two guiding principles, we are to be the salt and the light, help us as we look at what God expects just in the life of Daniel, but also in our lives, as we, too, live in a foreign land. And as we look at Daniel's life and his faith, we're going to examine it. We're going to see Daniel, three different things under this point. Daniel and his work we'll look at, Daniel and adversity, and then we'll see Daniel in prayer. 
And as we examine his faith, what to me is so compelling about this man, Daniel, is that for 83 years, this guy, I mean, oftentimes when we think of Daniel in the lion's den, if we're flipping through children's Bibles and books, we get this picture of a, a young man who's in the lion's den, flowing hair. But the reality is at this point, he's nearly 90 years old. Israel has been in Babylon for some 83-ish years at this point, okay? And what's amazing about his faith is it's one thing. For him to be in exile the way he is in Babylon, it would be one thing if he simply maintained his faith. If after exile or, or on his deathbed, he was still faithful to God, that in and of itself would be extraordinarily significant. But Daniel's faith through this time of exile, as he was a foreigner in this land, it was not just maintained. His faith was influential in, in directing his circumstances. God used Daniel in such a way, ultimately, that he would alter the direction of this kingdom. His faith wasn't just maintained. It was influential throughout his time in captivity. First thing we learn is about Daniel and work. Is, uh, chapter 6, we'll, now we'll get, that was a long introduction. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, I will read these and we'll talk a little bit about Daniel and work. It pleased Darius to set up over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one of whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. There was something about him that stood out above all the others because an excellent, the Bible says, an excellent spirit was in him. The king, a pagan king, recognizes that there is something amazing and extraordinary about this young man, the old man at that time. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom to the power and the influence that is at his fingertips as this new kingdom sets in place. Then the high officials and the satraps, they sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. First thing we learn about his, Daniel's faith is how his faith was integrated at work. Jeremiah was a prophet um, who was called to speak to God's people during their final fall at the hands of Babylon. And listen to what he says in, verse, in chapter 29, verse 4 through 7, as he instructs those who are in captivity, as they are, are on their way to captivity, he tells them, this is how you should live. This is how you should conduct your lives in that foreign land. Listen to the way he instructs them. Verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice that, whom I have sent. You may be tempted to think that the king, king came, and if you read the Bible, the king came and he took all these people and he brought them into exile. But the reality is, all along, in the backdrop of this book, God is the one who's orchestrating these events. He is sovereign over this entire situation. Here's what he tells them to do. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. 
but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As Jeremiah, being a mouthpiece of the Lord, speaks to God's people and instructs them of what's expected of them as they get to this foreign land, he tells them to, to don't, they might be tempted to sit on the margins or the, or the fringes of civilization and, and, and cluster together, keep their light together. No doubt that's what they were doing initially. Jeremiah says, no, you go into the city, build your homes among their homes, have your families live among their families, carry out life, get into the workplace, go to the marketplace, make Babylon your home. Make Babylon your home. Jerusalem is not your home anymore. Babylon is. Act, live like it is your home. That was his instruction to the people, is to make Babylon their home. You know, in 1970, my dad returned back from the Vietnam War. And then, um, as many did, I'm from Dubuque. It's where I grew up and where my dad's from. And as many did um, in that day, he found a job at the meatpacking plant, which was the main source of employment throughout the city of Dubuque in those days. And so from 1970 to 75, he worked at the, at the meatpacking plant. And then in 1975, a man um, was transitioned, uh, transferred into his department. Now, I don't know much about meatpacking, so don't let me fool you, but my dad says he came from the canning department, and now he was working alongside my dad in the sausage department, okay? And so right away, Tom, this guy's name was Tom, started to work closely next to my dad and build a relationship with my father. And they would work hard, and he said right away from the very beginning, I knew something was different about Tom. There was something that was different about him. Tom had a reputation to be a Bible thumper at the plant, but he didn't thump the Bible when he was working closely with my dad. They worked. He was a hard worker, and they worked closely together. Then on breaks, he said Tom would take every opportunity to take the conversation and point it back to Christ, to point it back to the Bible. My dad was Catholic, and he would argue anytime it would get spiritual. And then about six months in, Tom started to hand him a book. Hey, why don't you read this, and we'll talk about it. And my dad would take it home. He'd talk about it with my mom, and they would read. And he would come back, and he'd have some other points. He'd argue. And, and about eight months into this relationship, my dad found himself on his knees at the, in the sausage department of the meatpacking plant, fixing a pump. And there Tom is next to him, leading him into the kingdom of God. Tom was an amazing, faithful servant of Jesus. And Tom understood that the place that he would be the most powerful, the most useful to God was exactly where God had placed him, in the sausage department of the packing house. And he understood what it was like to integrate his faith with his work. So often our temptation can be to divide those two things, this secular and sacred divide that often happens within the church, that we keep those lives separate. And there could be temptation to do that, even at work where there might be regulations and restrictions on things you can and cannot talk about in your workplace. No doubt, Daniel, when we look at Daniel's life, Daniel was an extraordinary worker who struck this amazing balance of being both faithful to God and his devotion and his hope for deliverance while also faithfully serving a pagan king. What an amazing, he gives us an amazing story of what it looks like 
You know, in the early church, non-Christians didn't show up in the church services. That was not how they became Christians. There was a tremendous amount in those days, a tremendous amount of persecution at the time, and you wouldn't dare invite a non-Christian into your worship service for they may be an informant, all right? They may persecute you. Um, it, it, it may be a really bad mistake if you did that. Yet in the early days of the church, we know that the church grew at remarkable rates. It grew extraordinarily during the first couple of hundred years. So how did those people become Christians? They couldn't go into the church service. See, oftentimes we think, okay, if I'm going to witness to folks, if I'm going to share my faith, I need to have them come to church. There's lots of ministries. There's outreach events. There's things that they could do. They could sign up, and that'll be the staff's job to do that. I just got to build the relationship and get them to the building. That's not a prescription we see in the Bible. That's not how Daniel did it. That's not how the early church did it. Rather, they saw the lives of the Christians, the early church, they saw the lives of the Christians as they were lived out in public space, in the marketplace, at home, and at work. Daniel did not seal his faith from his workplace. In fact, Daniel was better at his work than everyone else. The Bible tells us Daniel stood out because he was faithful, more reliable, and a better worker. Such an important point. Not to divide our lives, sacred and secular, but to integrate our faith throughout. The next thing we learn from Daniel in verses 6 through 9 is how Daniel dealt with adversity. Verse 6 through 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom and prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be revoked. Therefore, the king, Darius, signed the document and the injunction. You know, for nearly a century, Daniel has made, he's done exactly what the prophet Jeremiah has instructed him to do. He has made Babylon his home. An amazing balance he struck, serving the king, serving God, while those around him may have been compromising. But don't think for a second that this was easy and that it didn't cost Daniel something. The text says all of the officials conspired against him. Every one of his colleagues sought to see the demise of Daniel. They wanted him done with. Every one of his colleagues, every one of his friends. Daniel's being faithful. He is doing what God has asked him to do, and yet persecution, adversity creep into Daniel's life. Imagine the frustration, having spent his entire life humble service to God and his city. And though he holds a position of influence, Daniel, throughout his time in Babylon, sees he's not privy to any great spiritual awakening where all of the city comes and bows their knees to Jesus. In fact, we don't see, aside from King Nebuchadnezzar, we hardly see much fruit in the life of Daniel. Granted, at the end of the story, we'll see that the king will legislate but you can't do faith throughout the kingdom. But there's not a, a genuine spiritual awakening that Daniel gets to see. He sees kings and kingdoms coming and going, and yet Daniel still finds himself in, an ex, in exile in a wicked pagan culture. And how does he deal with this adversity? 
Well, first consider what Daniel does not do. What Daniel does not do. He's number two guy. Daniel doesn't do is when this law gets signed, he doesn't rush into the king's chambers and say, whoa, hold on a second. I'm your boy, king. Don't you remember? See how this thing's going to work? He doesn't try to talk himself out of the situation. He doesn't do that. Daniel also doesn't quickly think of a new law that he could perhaps pitch to the king that would counteract the law that the king just signed. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to manipulate the situation. He doesn't get militant and dig in his feet. He doesn't fight for his rights. All of these these are things that he no doubt could do. He doesn't march down to the palace and pray on the steps, making a public spectacle of his open defiance. No, he doesn't do any of those things. Daniel goes to the Lord in prayer as he had done the day before and the day before that and the day before that. What a lesson for us to learn. What a lesson for me to learn. When when things don't go as planned in my life, my initial oftentimes reaction can be to quick, pick up the phone, call somebody, get some advice, talk through it with somebody, or think through how can I change my circumstances, manipulate things so that they, they have a different outcome. Those are some of my initial responses, but Daniel's initial response is to go to prayer like he had done day after day after day. We see this, Daniel, in prayer in verse 10 through 13. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement. They found Daniel making petition before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Daniel sees the petition get signed, and his response instantly is to go to prayer like he has done every day before. A couple of quick notes. When he prays, he goes to his room. He opens up his windows. He stays in the chamber. He falls on his knees. He looks towards Jerusalem, and he prays. And this shows us that as he gazes towards Jerusalem, he knows that God has promised to deliver his people from the land of Babylon. He knows that that is a promise and that God is faithful. As he prays, Daniel gazes towards Jerusalem, and he prays expectantly. Daniel expects God. He he doesn't let the the situations that he has faced crowd out his expectation and what he knows God will do what he says he's going to do. He prays expectantly. He bows down on his knees. He humbles himself before God. This is the man, the second man in charge of this kingdom, and he's bowing his knees before God. And he starts out, the Bible says, he give thanks. This man gives thanks. Thanks. Those around him are plotting to destroy him. His death is near. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And Daniel still recognizes there's much in his life to be thankful for. There's much to be thankful for. There is work that is still to be done. 
and Daniel is trusting that God will do it. Story goes on, verse 14 through 18. Then the king, when he heard these words, he was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared, O Daniel, may your God... Notice, the king is hes only in charge for a little bit here, and he knows that Daniel has a God. He knows, he knows enough about Daniel to know that his God is, is capable of delivering him. May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep soon fed from him. The king spends, the king of this kingdom spends the night tossing and turning. All he can think about is Daniel. Is he ripped limb from limb, eaten alive? Or can his God possibly save him? Anxiously, the king waits for sunrise. As we get into the next portion of this story, we will begin to see our next theme emerge, God as rescuer. And in, in these verses, we see God perform really two separate miracles. The first is the miracle that Daniel is delivered in verse 19 through 24. Then at the break of day, the king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. Remember, as we look at this, one of the dangers, we don't want to simply hold Daniel up and his actions as a model for our imitation today. There is much to learn the way he conducted himself, but that is not the main point of the story. We also have to remember that God doesn't, and this is an important note that some of us maybe can identify with even yet this morning, that God doesn't always shut the mouth of the lions. He, he doesn't always Regardless of his people's faithfulness, God does not always shut every lion's mouth. He doesn't always do that. He doesn't always get his people out of every obstacle or trial or pain or suffering or persecution. In fact, if you look at our history books, you will see that they are littered. This book is littered with individual after individual of Christian after Christian who gave their lives, who, was, who were faithful, much like Daniel was faithful to God, and it cost them their life. The, the lion's mouth was not shut. 
What we can do is walk out of here this morning thinking that if we simply, like Daniel, have a strong faith, that we will escape this world unscathed. If we simply trust and obey that no harm will come our way. If we believe that, we are in great error. That is a lie from the pit. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's a, a popular passage when you talk about this idea of faith. And throughout Hebrews chapter 11, you see it's called the, the hall of faith. Many people refer to it as. You see uh, verse after verse of, of individual who, who God used in mighty ways throughout redemptive history to bring glory to him. You learn about the, the fathers of our faith and the great faith that they had and the, and the ways that God used them, powerful ways to deliver his people from slavery. To, to establish a people where God would call them his people, lead them into the promised land. Story after story, it refers to of, of individual after individual who had a tremendous amount of faith and who God used in a tremendous way throughout redemptive history. But then if you read the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, you come to the final few verses. And often these verses are left out of the sermon. In verses 36 to 40, listen to what it says as the author of Hebrews finishes out this great hall of faith. He just lists Moses and Abraham and Noah and Rahab and individual after individual. And listen to what comes next. Others, he said, suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins, sheep, and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. For some reason, these words just terrify me. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. The, the lion's mouth was not shut. They were devoured, sawn in two, seeking refuge, hiding, wandering throughout deserts and mountains and hills and caves and dens. Their lives were tough. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made and be made perfect. Folks, the reality is, and some of you can identify with this right now, that God does not always shut the lion's mouth. Daniel's message throughout this chapter, it points to a great rescue. We can learn a lot from Daniel but about it, what it looks like to be faithful to God in a foreign land. But the reality is, as great as Daniel is, as great as he is, he is not the hero of this story. And if you're thinking about right now, I mean, just seriously, if we look across our country and we see division, if we see, we see crime, we see political uncertainty, some of us this morning could be dealing on a more personal level with, with pain, with, with grief. And we wonder, when will the lion's mouth be shut? When will it be closed? Enough. Enough. If I just think, you know, just personally, this has by far been the most difficult year for me. 
There, you know, in October, me and my wife, we lost our baby girl. And sitting through that pain and that grief, and still sitting in it, that's a, that's a lion's mouth that was not shut. I told you earlier, my wife is pregnant, but there is no bringing back Lila. There's no replacement for her. And that's a pain that will be there for the rest of my life. The lion's mouth was wide open. And if I, the temptation, the temptation for me and the temptation for you, if you can identify to a wide open lion's mouth, can be to think of, look at our circumstances and to think to ourselves, based on the circumstances around me, God is not faithful. God is not present. God is not here. The point of this story was to encourage people, a people who had lived in, in, in exile in a foreign land. Some died in that land. Some had family members die there, but to encourage them to remain faithful to God and to trust that their God is able. Daniel knew his God was able to deliver him. That his God, regardless if that lion's mouth was open or closed, that God would be with Daniel in that lion's den. And whatever you're going through this morning, if you are terrified of what you see happening in the world around us, if there's something in your life personally, what's going on right now, and it doesn't look like the lion's mouth is going to be closed, God is with you. And he is able to deliver you. The deliverance, like this story, it points to something greater. There's a greater deliverance that is to come. The last thing we see in this verse is the last um, aspect of God's rescue is the miracle that he works is, is how he prospers Daniel. Verses 25 to 28. Then King Darius wrote to all people's nations, languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree in all my royal dominion. People are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. King Darius, King Pagan, the pagan king and the mightiest nation of earth, makes a powerful confession at the end of this chapter concerning Israel's God, a living God. A kingdom will never be destroyed. It has no end. He delivers. He rescues. He does signs and wonders. A remarkable turn of events orchestrated not by Daniel, a faithful servant, but by the true sovereign God, Yahweh. Christians have long noted the similarities between Daniel and Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Both were conspired against, yet because of their blameless character, both faced trumped-up charges. Darius tried unsuccessfully to save Daniel while Pilate was unsuccessful in saving Jesus. In the face of such horrible persecution and injustice, both Daniel and Jesus demonstrated tremendous trust in the plan of God. Daniel descended into the pit, his grave, and Jesus' body was laid in a tomb. Both graves were covered with a stone and they were sealed. Both rose from the tomb. Following this ordeal, we learn that Daniel prospers. Likewise, the Bible tells us that after God raised Jesus from death, that after he raised Jesus from his death, that Jesus likewise prospered. He says, Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Though Daniel clearly prefigures Jesus, we know that Jesus is a far greater Daniel. He's a far greater Daniel. 
God raised Daniel from the den only to die at a later date. Jesus, by contrast, rose from the grave and lives forever. Daniel prospered during the reign, um, during, the, during his reign, while Jesus was highly exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Imagine the encouragement as his people would read this story and they would think that their God had abandoned them. That would be the temptation, that God will not do. He's not faithful. He's left us here. Imagine the encouragement that this would bring to his people, strangers in a foreign land, a renewed sense of hope this must have provided, an encouragement to trust that their God is able to deliver, that he is there with them in this foreign land. But we must see the rescue of Daniel as a signpost throughout redemptive history pointing to a greater rescue, a rescue mission that would involve God sending his son Jesus, the sinless lamb of God, who would bear our griefs and he would carry our sorrows, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that would bring us peace, and with his wounds would we be healed. Those who put their trust in the living God will be delivered even from death. As great of a story as this is in Daniel, there is a greater rescue that's coming. And it's not relegated just for God's people, a small contingency in the land of Babylon. This is accessible to everyone, to all of us, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, I don't know, like I said before, I don't know, as you sit here this morning, what specific way you need to be encouraged. That's between you and God. But how? How can this deliverance, this access, this rescue, how can he offer it to a people who do not deserve it? The God that we worship this morning, he is able to shut the lion's mouth. And whether or not he does, he is still God, and there is no one like our God. We might be tempted, as we see political parties warring against each other, to put our hope in one of those people, one of those parties. And if we do that, all that's going to happen is disappointment. There is one person who's worthy and who's able. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We see what you did in the life of Daniel, how you delivered, how you rescued him. And Lord, we pray that you, um, that you would be with each of us. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is on the throne, regardless of what's happening in our life, regardless of what's happening to those around us. Lord, you sit on the throne and you reign. You are sovereign. Father, strengthen our faith, our ability to trust you, that you are able and that there is none like you. Love you. Yes, he says in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. 
You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.